When I was a child, there was a mother who lived in my neighborhood from whom I received sewing lessons. She had a large family of five children, three of which were girls adopted from China. Their closets were full of chung sum that their mother had made herself. Here in America, Asian children with white parents are a fairly common sight to see. It has even become something of a trope in various forms of media. But why exactly is this type of family so common? In this podcast, we'll primarily discuss adoptions from China to the U.S., using the documentary film Somewhere Between to look at the experiences of four girls all adopted from China. Using the book Global Families, A History of Asian International Adoption in America by Catherine Choi, as well as an article by Rita Hogbaka titled The Quest for a Child of One's Own, Parents, Markets, and Transnational Adoption, we'll find out why this phenomenon exists. Finally, we'll talk with Gia Wesson, a friend of mine who was adopted from China by her American Scandinavian mother. I'm Hannah Bowman, and this is Murmuring Tigers, Asian Adoption from China to the USA. International adoption experienced a boom in the 1990s becoming more popular than ever in the following decades. Today, it is estimated that over 80,000 Chinese adoptees live in the U.S. alone. But the start of this trend actually dates all the way back to the 1950s. Following World War II, American occupation of Japan and Korea resulted in a large number of mixed-race Asian babies because of relations between U.S. soldiers and local women. Many of these children were adopted into white American families by the International Social Service. The ISS treated these adoptions as a form of immigration. International adoption rates in the U.S. only grew throughout the 60s and 70s, in part due to the decreasing supply of adoptable babies domestically. This is generally attributed to the increase in access to abortion and contraceptives. Essentially, American women were becoming better able to avoid unwanted pregnancies, and thus adoptions became rarer. Then, in 1979, China implemented their one-child policy. This policy stated that most couples could only have one child, and was created in an effort to slow the country's population growth, which was causing economic strain. In China, boys were considered more valuable than girls, both because they were expected to carry on the family name and because they would often be the ones making money for the family. For many rural families that were farmers, boys were seen as stronger workers. This cultural preference for boys resulted in many female infants ending up in Chinese orphanages, which soon began to overflow. Naturally, this high supply in China, coupled with the high demand in the U.S., created the perfect stage for mass international adoption. So now, we see families like the ones in the film Somewhere Between. Somewhere Between focuses on four teenage girls who were adopted from China as children. The film was directed by Linda Knowlton, who, after adopting a baby girl from China, 
wanted to learn more about what she had in store. We meet 15-year-old Fang Li, known as Jenny in school, who was adopted at the age of five and now lives in California. Fellow 15-year-old Jenna Cook lives in Massachusetts, where she does crew and figure skating at her high school. 14-year-old Anne Bocuti plays piano and does color guard at her school in Pennsylvania. And 13-year-old Haley likes to sing and play violin in Nashville, Tennessee. Over the course of the film, we get to know these girls very well. They share with us their experiences growing up adopted, good and bad. A sentiment expressed by several of the girls is comparing themselves to certain foods, a Twinkie or a banana, yellow on the outside, white on the inside, Haley says. Jenna's sister Sarah, a fellow Chinese adoptee, disagrees, saying they are a mix of the two, like scrambled eggs. This idea that growing up in a white family makes you white on the inside is a common one among adoptees of color, but the parents in the film do attempt to be true to their daughter's native culture. Fang's mom speaks Mandarin, though interestingly, her Asian American father can only speak English. Both Fang and Haley visit China often. Anne has not been yet, though her parents have promised her that they will go when she is older. Most of the girls don't remember their biological parents having been adopted as babies. Fang is the exception. She lived with her parents until the age of five and does remember them. Despite this, she has not been able to find her birth parents. When she visits China, she asks people on the street which minority group they think she belongs to. Is she Miao? Yi? Dai? We can tell that she wants desperately to belong, a feeling that pervades despite her loving family in the U.S. This feeling is in some ways central to the adoptee experience. No matter circumstances, it is hard to shake the idea that one was somehow rejected by their birth parents. Fang cherishes her ears that were pierced as a baby, because to her, they are proof that her family cared about her. During one of these visits to China, Fang meets Run Yi, a little girl in an orphanage who has cerebral palsy. Fang and her parents sponsor the little girl, paying for her to get physical therapy and facilitating her adoption. Fang is able to help the little girl adjust when her adoptive family arrives in China talking to her in Mandarin, and being a familiar face during the transition. Run Yi is one of many adoptees that has some form of disability. Anne is another, having been born with mild deformities that she grew out of. It can be harder for these children to get adopted, and is one reason why international adoption can be viewed as a form of charity. Some families in China may not have the resources to take care of these children, while some families in the U.S. do. Haley's mother, who does work with multiple Chinese orphanages, views it as charity work. Another form of charity is the organization called Global Girls, which gives international adoptees opportunities to travel to other countries. Jenna travels to Spain to talk to Spanish families hoping to adopt from China. Haley and Anne travel to the UK and the Netherlands and end up becoming friends along the way. It is in the Netherlands that they meet Hillbrand Westra, founder and president of Adoptees United Netherlands and an international adoptee from Korea. It is here that the film's hardest-hitting scene takes place, 
as Westra explains that he doesn't think international adoption should exist. He talks about the poor record-keeping for orphanages in a lot of Asian countries, which leads to children who do in fact have parents being labeled as orphans. He intimates that this is to make it easier for children to be adopted out of the country. When Haley asks why they would do that, he simply responds, why do you think they would do that? This is as far as the film goes in regards to discourse surrounding international adoption. But make no mistake, Hillbrand Westra is not the only one who sees issues with the practice. International adoption has been likened to forced migration, human trafficking, kidnapping, and even genocide. Indeed, adoption of children of color into white families has been used this way before, most notably in the U.S. with indigenous and Latinx children. Adopting children of a minority group into a majority group can result in an erasure of culture, though that is rarely the individual parent's motivation. The fact that Haley was raised Christian could be seen as an example of this, though she does say that she enjoys being involved in church. Her mother says that her charity work in China does not involve preaching the word of God, but she also says this is because the Chinese government would kick them out, perhaps implying that she would do so if she was able. It is worth examining the potential colonist motivations behind adopting children internationally. Near the end of the film, against all odds, Haley is able to find and meet her birth parents. This is a joyous occasion but the atmosphere sours when Haley's adoptive mother nonchalantly asks her Chinese family, so, who was the one who abandoned her? As is the case for many a Chinese adoptees, Haley's parents left her at an orphanage due to financial strain. They couldn't afford to take care of another child. This raises yet more questions about the ethicality of international adoption. Is it right to raise someone else's child because they can't afford to? But the film doesn't ask these questions. It instead focuses more on the individual experience of the four girls, who are indeed very thoughtful and have a lot to say about how they feel being adopted. I'm here with my friend Jia, whose American mother adopted them from Chongqing, China at the age of eight months old. So a lot of children who are adopted internationally from China don't know much about their birth parents or their past before the orphanage. In your case, you probably don't even remember the orphanage. Tell us the story. Okay, well... My mom has always told me that I am adopted. She never, she never hid it from me when I was young. So I always kind of grew up knowing that I was adopted. So I guess I never really cared too much. The only times it ever comes up is usually when I guess I mention I'm adopted. Someone is like, oh, well, how is that for you? Like, do you ever think about visiting your adopted parents or trying to find them? And, and to be honest, it has never really for me, struck me too much to ever think about finding my adoptive parents because I don't really think I get that chance because there there was nothing that came along with um, 
whenever they found me at the orphanage or I'm not even sure how I, how I got there. Um, all my mom told me is that I don't have any documents or anything and that it was evident that whoever put me there wanted me, wanted to put me up for adoption as opposed to, you know, abortion or, or something else. So my mom has always told me that, you know, something that you can be certain of, Gia, is that you're, you're a wanted child, if that makes sense. Growing up, do you remember any of your specific feelings about adoption? Do you ever remember resenting it, liking it? For me, it was just kind of there, just a component of myself that I never really... It never really came out or came up anywhere, like I said, unless it was medical history or unless it, I just decided to tell someone it and then have them, have them ask me, I guess, you know, all the, all the deep questions that I don't really, at this point, care about as much because I kind of can't figure out who my, my real, or well, I don't know, saying real parents is kind of weird, but my, my birth parents are, because like something that's very important in my current family is that um, oh man so like we have a lot we have a lot of diverse we have like african-american we have korean we have chinese we have scandinavian we have a big big bunch of everything and the most important thing is that for us blood does does not matter like it, it's all about family it's all about what we have in front of us it's all about the connections we share and like it doesn't even I don't even have a remote sense of what it means to be like a, a blood sibling or a blood brother or, you know, connected to my mother at all. Like, I don't even know what that is because all I know is that, like, there's a, a magnificent woman that's, like, taking care of me and just giving me her everything and loves and supports me and the rest of my family, too. So it's never really come up, if that makes sense. Yeah, you seem to have very positive uh feelings about your adoptive mother oh oh yeah definitely oh yeah dang she kind of like saved very much saved me my sister on the other hand is a lot more i guess negative in terms of how she views her adoption um uh, my sister and one of my cousins who is also adopted um he was adopted from korea at 14 months my sister was adopted i think at 18 months I believe and my sister kind of um, has a lot more bitter feelings towards her adoption in terms of you know she could have died or she could have never been adopted and apparently some children who are adopted go through this thing called a, a ghost kingdom in which they kind of imagine what happens if they were never adopted and or imagine all these like a, a ghost kingdom for themselves that they've never had and Apparently for um, my cousin, who's uh, the adopted from Korea as well, has these thoughts of a ghost kingdom and it's very, very depressing for him and for my sister as well. And I never even heard the term ghost kingdom at all until I talked to him recently about just adoption because for my sister and I both, um, nothing that adoption gave us symptomatically started to appear until I think we were in college and away from our only parent figure. Also, I'd, 
I don't actually have a current dad. My mom never married, so she's a single mom. And she adopted my sister and I from China. My sister is five years younger than me and was adopted from a different part of China. And so she's actually like my blood sister either, but we're like, doesn't doesn't matter. We're still we're still very much sisters. Even though, you know, we're born into a very loving, caring family, we've we've never been abused, we've never been under any kind of horrendous trauma or anything like that at all but we still seem to have a lot of I guess abandonment and like trust issues and trouble opening up or trouble with the idea of losing some sort of care provider and for, for my sister it's a lot more difficult for her but for me it never really appeared until I started to get into I guess kind of personal relationships it's always hard to say what exactly causes various mental troubles. There's like so many minutiae that go into it. Yeah, it's true. That's that's true, but I think for for adopted kids specifically, we all three of us have that in common in terms of, you know, some kind of weird fear of loss, I suppose. Or reluctancy to open up emotionally. Different parents of international adopted children go to different levels in order to immerse their children in the culture they came from. Uh, what degree of immersion would you say you got from your mother? Did she speak Chinese at the, in the house or teach you about Chinese traditions or was it more of a Americanized upbringing? Um, I'd say on a level of you know, like one to ten, she... she... In my childhood, she tried to, I think she tried to do a good four. I'd say my upbringing was a good four out of ten in terms of the, the Chinese aspect. She never spoke Chinese to me, um, but she would try to immerse me and she took me to Chinese class. We would go to like Chinese events. She would, you know, get me Chinese um, music tapes and videos and try to teach me about the language. I would go to this daycare called Mei Mei's and it was like a learning place for, for young Chinese kids. And I, I enjoyed Mei Mei's, but I guess I never really went down the, the, in the Chinese route, I suppose. Like, weirdly enough, I'm more into Japan. <laughs> My minor is in Japanese, I've studied abroad in Japan, and I really don't have any interest in learning Chinese. So talk to me a little bit about that. Do you have, did you have any initial motivation for studying Japanese or Japanese culture? Uh, and is there a reason why you favor it over Chinese culture? Um, well, I guess the only thing I can think of as well as young girls, very into art and drawing and something and all the cartoons I'd watch were all kind of, you know, in the Japanese cartoon style called anime, you know, like Pokemon, and I'd really kind of be drawn to that sort of stuff. Um, I used to watch the little cartoon about a mermaid, and that was um, in anime and in Japanese as well, and, you know, I'd listen to all the songs and try to imitate the Japanese words, but I just find it interesting that my my interests in terms of Asian culture went towards Japan than China, and mostly it was because of the fantasy aspect, I believe. But one of my friends, Megan, was telling me about 
how um, Asian uh, kids who are adopted growing up usually tend to go down one of the some sort of have some sort of interest in Asian culture. And I said, huh, that's weird because I never really was wasn't a Chinese at all. And she's like, yes, but you were into Japanese stuff, so that still counts. And I'm like, what? Really? So I still fell into some sort of weird category? I mean, the cultures have similarities just because of geographical proximity. But of course, you know, it's a bit reductive to just uh, equate the two. But it, it's not incorrect to draw connections between them. Do you view yourself as more Chinese, more American, or Chinese-American? What, what identity would you say you most identify with? Mm, honestly, probably American, because I've grown up in the American environment. I think, for me, the only part that's Asian about me is my body at this point. <laughs> When I go out and interact with the world or whatever, I kind of forget about my physical body, if that makes sense. Unless, unless it pertains to gender, I, I, I think about gender more than I do think about like me being Chinese. What do you, what do you think about the desperation that family, that a family might feel that would lead them to give up their child, and as an extension of that? Do you, what do you think about your birth parents or birth mother and do you think that they were in a desperate situation or do you do you have do you have the ghost kingdom have you ever thought about what could have been or what was mm, for me I don't really think about the ghost kingdom because that's just at that point that's just kind of unless I'm trying to feel grateful for what I have right now, I don't really think a ghost kingdom is very helpful, if that makes sense. Like, sure, I could try to, I could, I could try to make up a story in which I wasn't ever adopted, but that's just kind of writing a fantasy story at this point. So I don't really find any value in it unless I'm trying to really kind of respect and be humble about the things I have. But even with that, that's kind of you know, digging yourself into a very dark place, like, you, you know? Some people view a international adoption as some as sort of a kind of charity work or something similar to that. They view it as a, a good cause. Others liken it more to a sort of stealing of culture. Some have even made links to genocide because according to the Geneva Convention genocide does include taking children from a minority group and raising them with the majority group. Do you view international adoption as a good cause or something that is misguided or perhaps even something that is harmful to people? Um, I'd say, at least in my case, like, it's definitely a, a, definitely a good cause. I mean, I can't imagine someone going through this whole entire process just to corrupt or utilize that sort of racial issue. Like, I, for me at least, adoption is a very pure thing. It isn't pure anymore when you add that stuff in, or like, it should be a pure thing, I guess.
So, like, what happens if, I don't know, my mom has a, a Scandinavian kid and who's blood-related to her, and she tries to impose Scandinavian culture on that kid? Like, that that's... I think the issue is the imposing. If the kid was me, and I'm Asian, my mom imp imposed Scandinavian culture on me, I think society would wave more of a red flag only because of a racial difference. I think the issue in general is just someone imposing something on someone else. You've hit the nail on the head in terms of, I think the issue is probably when it's imposed. Like, if your mother had imposed Scandinavian culture and punished you for trying to learn about Chinese culture, maybe that would be an issue. But of course, we know that's not the case. Leigh Barton, a fellow adoptee who went to Spain with Jenna, says that she feels they were not abandoned, but placed. Fong says that the reason she ended up where she is is Tingyi, the Chinese word for destiny, or the plan of the heavens. This is Hannah Bowman with Murmuring Tigers, signing off.